The U.S. Supreme Court upholds the Indian Child Welfare Act. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, June 15th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, today's decision by the court stands on decades of precedent regarding the political status of Native American tribes. In 1978, the bill known as ICWA was introduced by South Dakota's U.S. Senator Jim Aberesk. Congressional hearings had revealed that hundreds of thousands of Native American children had been removed from their homes, sometimes by force. ICWA gave first preference for adoption and foster placement to extended families and tribal members. It was challenged in court, but today the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the 45-year-old legislation. We'll have context and analysis after the news. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act today. The court rejected all of the challenges to the law, which was enacted more than 45 years ago. The legal challenge came from non-Native parents who argued, among other things, that the law was discriminatory against them. We'll have legal analysis from Mike Thompson in a moment. But first, for context, let's listen back to reporting by Victoria Wicks. The audio you're about to hear is from November of 2022. Victoria filed this piece ahead of those oral arguments regarding ICWA. Now, under ICWA, Native American children removed from their homes are placed with relatives, their tribe, or other Native American families first. And the purpose is to keep children close to their own heritage and to protect the continued autonomy of tribal nations. Here's Victoria Wicks. When the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments on January 22, 2020, some of it was emotional, pleading the case for loving non-Indian people to be able to foster or adopt Native children. Matthew McGill tells stories of Native children and foster families bonding and then being torn apart. My clients opened their hearts and their homes to a child in need and embraced that child as a part of their family. They are here because the Indian Child Welfare Act's placement preferences turned their lives and their families upside down solely because the child they took in is an Indian child and they are not and cannot be, because of their race, Indian families. McGill represents three couples and an individual whose attempts to foster or adopt Native children were thwarted by ICWA. He argues that ICWA violates non-Indians' constitutional guarantees of equal protection. There is no other provision of Title 25 that directly disadvantages non-Indians in a state proceeding in the way that ICWA does. There's nothing that even comes close. It is a, the, a direct disadvantage placed on non-Indians in state affairs that are of the utmost importance to these people. He gives as an example the case of Jason and Danielle Clifford, a Minnesota couple who wanted to adopt their native foster child known as Child P. These families, the Clifford's family, literally was torn apart as Child P was pried out of their arms because she was an Indian child. The Cliffords are included in this appeal before the Supreme Court. As with any court case, there are at least two sides to the story. In this case, the side opposing ICWA includes the state of Texas and Chad Brackeen and his wife, Jennifer, as well as other states and other non-Indian couples. 
On the side supporting ICWA are Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, other federal agencies, and Indian tribes. Those are the parties who will make arguments in person before the nine justices of the Supreme Court. But various other sides come into play in a long list of amicus curiae, or friend of the court, briefs, filed by various people or organizations weighing in favor of one party or the other. Justices can consider these statements and give them whatever weight they feel they merit. The maternal grandmother of child P is represented in this way. In her amicus brief, Robin Bradshaw, a registered member of the White Earth Band of the Ojibwe tribe, outlines her battle to hang on to custody of her granddaughter. She eventually succeeded. She notes that the Clifford's attempts to adopt her granddaughter was aggressively litigated in the state of Minnesota, and they should not have another shot in this forum. Some briefs, like the one filed by 497 tribes and 62 tribal and Indian organizations, say ICWA protects Native children's well-being and the preservation of tribal nations. Casey Family Programs filed to support ICWA, noting that the focus in child welfare has shifted to strengthening families rather than child rescue. And then there are those who look at the constitutional issues. One brief in support of ICWA was submitted by 24 attorneys general, including South Dakota Attorney General Mark Fargo and Attorney General Keith Ellison of Minnesota, where the Clifford's battle to adopt child P played out in the courts and in the news media for years. Another group in support of ICWA is the Administrative Law and Constitutional Law Professors. There have been treaties made with Indian nations requiring uh, certain commitments towards taking care of children, the welfare of families, David Cole is a Dallas attorney representing the law professors. And pursuant to those treaties, Congress has enacted ICWA as something necessary and proper to carrying out the goals of those treaties. That necessary and proper language is found in the Constitution, as is Congress's power to enter into treaties. And Cole says those powers, in combination with the Indian Commerce Clause, uphold ICWA. But he says the necessary and proper language, historically interpreted broadly as allowing Congress to take measures to fulfill its constitutional duties, is now being challenged. And this ICWA is one of the relatively few cases to come back to the court to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should put some limits on the necessary and proper clause. And that's a big, that's a big issue. The Constitution does not give Congress the power to regulate domestic relations. At oral arguments before the Fifth Circuit, former Texas Solicitor General Kyle Hawkins represents the states. But even if it did, Congress must wield that power consistent with the anti-commandeering doctrine of the Tenth Amendment and the non-delegation doctrine of Article I. ICWA is the rare federal statute that violates both anti-commandeering and non-delegation principles. Hawkins argues that state agencies, such as courts and social services, are commandeered, forced to tailor their services to fulfill the demands of ICWA. Matthew McGill, the lawyer representing the non-Indian couples, agrees and says ICWA creates unconstitutional racial considerations. When Congress is regulating the internal affairs of an Indian tribe, it's obviously political. But when it's regulating state affairs, it's not any longer political. It operates in that, in that domain as a racial classification. And the reason why is that when you are in the realm of state affairs, you are implicating, almost by necessity, the rights of non-Indians. 
How the Supreme Court will decide these issues is hard to predict. Attorney David Cole says ultimately the question has to do with the Constitution's grant of power to Congress and how far the Necessary and Proper Clause allows Congress to act in furtherance of those powers. There's a reason the Constitution fits in something small enough that you can put it in your jacket pocket. I mean, they weren't trying to draft a civil code like France has. It has every single conceivable thing written down in it. They were okay. drafting a broad outline, and a broad outline of a political system. Cole says the Constitution leaves open-ended directions, such as the Necessary and Proper Clause, to be applied when new situations arise. This business about it's not in the Constitution, so it just isn't there, there's there's a point to that. There's a valid force to that kind of argument. At some point, though, you have to say, okay, get real. <laughs> it was 1790. They weren't pretending to have an exhaustive list for you know 250 years in the future. They weren't that arrogant. When the Supreme Court hears arguments on November 9th, the justices will likely flesh out these issues with the questions they ask. But until the high court issues an opinion sometime before June 2023, the outcome of this case remains uncertain. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Victoria Wicks. And that is reporting from Victoria Wicks on the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that reporting, by the way, from November 2022. Well, today, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld ICWA and rejected the legal challenges to it that Victoria described in that piece. So let's learn more about the impact of that decision now. Mike Thompson is a criminal justice professor at the University of Sioux Falls. And we welcome him back to the Kirby Family Studio here with me for analysis of the historic decision. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, you also sent me an email in 2022 saying we need to watch this case because it's incredibly important and impactful um, in our neck of the woods. Right. What were you thinking back then? What were you watching? And then we'll talk about the decision that was released today. Okay. We Well, with nine tribes in South Dakota, it's very important um, to tribal people what ICWA does. So... I think the number of tribes, number of Native Americans in South Dakota warranted a, a close eye on how this case traveled through the courts. Yeah. Walk people through how this is, these decisions are being released now. Um, we didn't know necessarily that it's coming when it's they don't schedule these and tell us. How, how does the Supreme Court work in that way for those who are surprised by this release of information? Right. They The, the Supreme Court... Uh, typically in the last uh, recent history waits until June to issue decisions that decisions that they reach the merits of a constitutional claim in which they uh, did on on this case so the and you're right they don't say hey we're going to deliver this opinion on such and such a day it's just they just issue it. Yeah, here, um, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> right. Yep, enjoy are, it. And we are talking about it. <laughs> so thanks for being here on uh, short notice. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a new court. So, right. so, you know, a few years ago, we might have had this conversation. We would have said, well, the, there was precedent. But this court doesn't always stand on, on precedent for, you know, the political status of tribes, for example. It was possible that this was going to go in a completely different direction. Right. What can you tell from the, you know, it's a 133-page decision. Right. I don't think that you've read it all yet, no, nor have no. I. But broadly speaking, what can you tell is important about today? Well, it, a 7-2 to decision, I think, is important. You've got a, a cadre of people who were appointed by different uh, presidential administrations. And then the two dissenters, Clarence Thomas and I think Samuel Alito. Um, the, uh, the way uh, the Supreme Court decided um, this case 
goes back to, I think, there's a case uh, back in the 2020s, McGirt versus Oklahoma, where Justice Gorsuch wrote that majority opinion and upheld treaty language. Uh, that was a criminal law situation, but he declared most of eastern Oklahoma to still be reservation land. And I think that was somewhat of a surprise. Mm-hmm. And it seems that the court is looking at uh, tribal matters, um, I think, with regard to some past precedent. Uh, and I think that the treaty language stuff that upheld McGirt, I think that's important from a tribal perspective, that that some treaties or all treaties should be upheld. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about this idea of is this racial Native Americans is this is not racial; it's a political designation. Right. Help us understand what that means and why that's so important here. Okay, so the the Bill of Rights in the Constitution does not apply to Indian people. Uh, in 1968, Congress passed a statute, the Federal, uh, so the Indian Civil Rights Act, and that allowed some lawsuits against tribes. And there was a woman who brought a lawsuit against her tribe uh, for a violation of equal protection. And the Supreme Court ruled, and this has been many, many, many years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that Indians were a political group, not a race. So there was no equal protection argument that could be made. So that, that is a long line of precedent, that mm-hmm. Indians are a political group and not a race for purposes of equal protection. So ICWA is nation to nation, not... Um, I, yeah, I, spin, I, spin it out yeah, a little more. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. nation to nation is a little broad. Okay. The uh, uh, tribes are, and this is noted in the opinion, tribes are under complete control of Congress, according to the, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Congress has complete control over tribes. So whatever a tribe gets is what Congress gives it, and whatever a tribe doesn't get, Congress doesn't, doesn't give it. So I don't think it's nation to nation. I think it's, well, as Justice Marshall said in the early 1800s, it's a relationship of a guardian to a ward. The U.S. is the guardian. Uh, Native Americans are its wards. Huh. So... Uh, if Congress says so, tribes can have it. That is essentially it. So this decision then means what to tribes? And we're going to ask some people who are tribal members. We've got some invitations out to continue this conversation. Tomorrow I don't expect you to speak on their behalf. Right. But from a legal analyst perspective, how significant is this decision if you you know, um, are one of these tribal communities that that wanted ICWA to continue, you continue, want those protections of ICWA. I, I think it's significant in that it recognizes the tribe's power to declare what's best uh, for, for their people. Uh, and it, I, I think um, you, you we're seeing this. This court is big at looking at original understanding, how things were done in the, in the beginning, uh, and in recent years, the precedent has increasingly noted uh, the power of tribes to regulate their members. And I think I, I would be, if I was a tribal uh, member, I would be um, very optimistic about where this court is headed, at least with regard to tribal matters. Yeah. So right now, if I said what changes, the answer is nothing. Right. right? Okay. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Does this help solidify that for the future then, too? Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, in the dissenting opinion, we have Justice Clarence Thomas. Amy Coney Barrett writes the um, 
the opinion, I believe. Anyway, she does not agree with um, her mentor, Justice Thomas, from an inside baseball standpoint. Does that matter <laughs> at all to you? Uh, because, the, 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 you know, the, yeah. the political accusation is always that, you know, these justices will come and they won't think for themselves. They'll, you know, act on the behalf of a president or on right. behalf of another, you know, a beloved mentor or leader. Right. And this is the example of the court working as it should in the sense, if you believe each justice should have their own opinion. That's it, what I'm getting at there. Yeah, what do it, you think? Well, I, I think um, Justice Barrett was uh, Scalia's law clerk, at, Justice Scalia's law clerk at yeah. some point. And Justice Scalia, uh, I thought about this on, on the way over. There's a case called Texas versus Johnson, the flag burning case. And there was, at that time, there was some talk that uh, the Supreme Court's going to say that the First Amendment doesn't cover burning a flag. Well, Justice Scalia wrote that opinion. Uh, which was kind of a, a surprise, but he was true to looking at the original understanding and things that were that were done, how the First Amendment had been um, interpreted. So I think it, I think Justice Barrett took it the same way here because the opinion, from what I can see, is based heavily on precedent and precedent that she believes uh, should be followed. She and I guess the other six members of the majority believe should be followed yeah well any final thoughts on this that uh we haven't covered it feels like we've yeah done a comprehensive job and we appreciate you stopping by i'm happy Let's go to read be those here. 133 pages <laughs> yes. now and yes. uh, we'll have more hopefully on this conversation tomorrow we do have some invitations out you've been listening to university of sioux falls professor mike thompson who often joins us to talk about the u.s supreme court we'll see you next time thank you You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, why do some people develop cancer and others don't? The Sanford Connect study is a 30-year study hoping to enroll 10,000 patients and find some answers to that question. Chun Hung Chan is a research Chan. Chan. Chan, thank you. Is a research development partner at Sanford Research. He's here to talk about the progress of the study so far, and he's also with me in the Kirby Family Studio. Dr. Chan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. This sounds like an exciting and ambitious study. Tell me a little bit about um, the big picture thinking of a study like this with such an enormous question, a 30-year you know, projection. What are some of the logistics that go into financing a study like that, getting people to buy into it? Tell us uh, a little bit about that. So, um, yes, yeah, so it, this is a very large kind of ambitious study. Um, it's funded by the National Cancer Institute, which is actually part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Um, so it's funded by the federal government. Um, and, um, you know, the, the idea behind it really is um, to kind of identify um, potential causes of cancer. You know, like you mentioned at the beginning, why do some people get cancer and other people don't? Um, you know, there's a lot of different factors involved, um, and we don't know all the answers right now. Um, but the idea behind the study is if we actually um, collect samples and information from um, participants and follow them for a long time, um, hopefully we can actually find some clues as to why, you know, one person might get cancer, but some other person, you know, their neighbor doesn't get cancer. Um, so it is going to be a very um, long study. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it's going to be, you know, decades. Um, 
And, you know, the reason for that is because obviously, you know, we can't predict when somebody is going to develop cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and we are actually asking people who don't have a history of cancer to enroll in this study because it's, it's essentially it's a before and after kind of comparison. You know, we enroll people when they before they have cancer uh, and uh, you know, we kind of ask them questions about their lifestyle, about their medical history. We ask them to provide samples. Um, and then we uh, follow them over a course of a number of years. And, you know, the unfortunate truth is that a, a, a certain proportion of them will eventually um, likely develop cancer of some form. Um, and then we can actually go back to those same patients and take a look at, you know, um, what's different, you know, what may be different, you know, in their lives at that point. Um, and also look at their past history and kind of try to identify factors that might have kind of resulted in them being more likely to develop cancer than somebody else. Um, and, you know, you're right in the sense that, you know, there's huge logistics behind this. Um, you know, we started being involved in this study back in 2018, um, but we did not enroll our first participant until um, 2021. Um, the reason for that is because, you know, Sanford is actually one of nine uh, institutions nationwide who are participating in this study. Um, and as I've mentioned, the National Cancer Institute is actually the sponsor for this study. So we've actually had to spend, we spent about three years just planning yeah. how, how to do the study. Yeah. Um, you know, because there's, there's a lot of factors to be considered. Uh, in terms of, you know, how do you collect the samples? Um, you know, how do you find the right patients? Um, what questions do you ask them? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah. Uh, who do you want to come sign up and how, what's the process for people to say, I want to participate in this? So, so the study is actually looking for um, participants who are between, between the ages of 40 and 65 um, who actually have no history of invasive cancer. So, um, there are certain forms of non-invasive cancer, like certain types of skin cancer or certain types of breast cancer, um, which are described as non-invasive, um, where you, you would still qualify. Um, but if you don't have a history of cancer and you're between the ages of 40 and 65, um, then that's the type of um, participant we're looking for. Um, because of the need to um, uh, kind of being able to, to follow and track um, the participant for a number of years, um, this, this study is kind of restricted to Sanford patients mm -hmm. um, just because it's easier for us to keep track of um, those patients and actually to obtain some of the information that we need from your medical records to associate with um, the samples that you would provide. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the reasoning behind uh, why you, you know, we're looking for 1465 is because that's kind of the age group when most um, cancer diagnoses are kind of um, first uh, made. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we, we think that uh, by targeting that population and follow them over a course of 10 to 20 years that we are going to see some of those participants develop cancer. Yeah. It seems to me, and this is just from personal experience, that people will come forward for a study like this if cancer has touched their lives. Maybe they've had loved ones or neighbors um, experience a diagnosis and they want to be of service. Tell me a little bit about the potential for breakthroughs with a, with a, a study like this. What's one of the best possible scenarios? I know you're a scientist, so you're not going <laughs> to spin mm -hmm. forward a fantasy but this could really have an impact on people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you're completely right. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the participants that we speak to, you know, the, part of the kind of reason why they um, 
want to participate is because they've been touched by cancer, um, you know, either a relative or a friend, um, and they really just want to give back. You know, they, they want to do their part to, to fight this devastating disease. Um, you know, and I think the, um, the kind of ultimate goal for this study is that, um, you know, by looking at um, kind of your genetics, your environment, your past history, that we'll be able to f identify um, factors that are uh, you know, likely to, um, you know, make you more likely to, to develop cancer and maybe come up with a way to prevent it. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, have heard that, you know, certain chemicals might, um, you know, predispose you to developing cancer later in life. Um, you know, I think for our population here, obviously, we're a very rural population, lots of farming, you know, and farm chemicals might be one of those factors. Um, and by, by enrolling participants who may have been exposed to those farm chemicals and understanding, you know, what their history is and, and using surveys to to look at you know, where they lived and, and what exposures they've had, um, you know, it's possible that we could link you know, uh, certain chemicals or certain exposures to you know, a greater risk of cancer and then you know, actually try to help you know, people understand that you need to um, uh, limit your exposure to those chemicals. Sure. Um, so it, it's kind of you know, things like that, you know, that kind of just that information um, about what you know, what you've experienced um, prior to the cancer diagnosis, that could be a really, you know, influencing factor in, in terms of understanding um, how to prevent cancer in the future. Yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff. It, it seems to me there have been other landmark studies that have gone for decades. <coughs> Excuse me. There was one with nurses or something. I mean, how often do studies really last 20, 30 years? So, um, so you're right. I mean, there, there, there have been other large studies, um, and I would say uh, there aren't that many of them just because yeah. of the, the kind of logistics of um, trying to follow uh, that, you know, a large number of participants over a, lo a long period of time. Um, and, you know, we, we are acutely aware of the fact that, you know, we are going to have participants that we will lose track of or participants who um, we just can't... Um, you know, keeping the study for that period of time. But we're hoping that we will have a good proportion of people who actually do stay in the study for a long time. Um, you know, I think one of the more famous um, kind of like long-term studies is um, the Framingham Heart Study uh, that was conducted uh, many, many decades ago. Um, they were able to follow participants for a really long time and, and they identified things such as, you know, you know, the link between cholesterol and heart disease. Right. and things like that. So we're hoping we can do the same thing with, with cancer right. and identify factors that are linked to cancer. I'm hoping that too. Tell people what they... We'll put some links up on our website mm -hmm. at sdpb.org slash news, but is there a place you want people to go to find out more information or just talk to your primary care doctor? So um, we are... Um, yeah, we, we are actually um, enrolling... It, it's all done online. Okay. Um, we, we will be identifying participants who are eligible and sending out invitations. Um, but we do have information in our clinics as well, right. uh, where that you can find that. Um, and, um, you know, certainly we can provide the link, um, for you to, to put online, um, yeah. where we can, uh, you know, people can find out more information about the study. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Chan, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Empower Ed is an experimental school in the Black Hills. It is bringing back the one-room schoolhouse concept. Well, for the past two years, they've taught a handful of kids of all ages from elementary to high school in one room. The kids split up not by grade level, but by ability to do their learning. Angela Giffen is the founder of Empower Ed and a teacher there. She's with us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City to explain more about how her school works. Angela, welcome. Thank you, Lori. It's a real privilege to join you today. Tell us a little bit about how this idea or the, you know, the genesis of this idea first came to you. How'd you get involved? Mm -hmm. So ever since I was a child, I wondered, how could school be better? And, um, and I experienced a lot of different types of educational settings growing up. And some I liked more and some I liked less. And it made me just very curious about what, is, what goes into all of that. So for more than 20 years, I have been researching, exploring, and experimenting with different educational styles, and I developed an idea. Um, and more recently, with a team of experienced teachers, passionate parents, and caring community members, we developed a learning environment that combines the best of various effective educational models from around the world. Um, first, we built our foundation on research about child development and how the brain and body work. Then we created a learning model based on best practices from those diverse styles. And finally, as we welcome kids into our program, we incorporate their personal interests and abilities to create a responsive learning environment. Take me into the classroom and tell me, you know, walk me through a lesson and what it might look like if I were there observing. So we do offer lots of tours, which is always very exciting for families and community members to come in. And one of the things that you'll notice first is that all the kids are together and um, learning across ages and learning from one another. And we group the kids in small groups based on their knowledge of each topic. So for example, if a second grader can do sixth grade math and reads at a first grade level, then we teach them sixth grade math <laughs> and we teach them first grade literacy. And we do that without any judgment of being behind or ahead. We take them wherever they are and we help them to grow. So in this classroom with all of these kids around, we'll take a group of kids and we'll do a one-on-one -on -one lesson or a five-on-one lesson. Um, and then the other kids are working on um, learning activities that usually involve something either very interesting or some sort of play or something that engages them in the learning material. And so we move around with these different groups and do these small group lessons while the other kids are also doing learning activities. Tell me a little bit about getting outside the classroom, field trips, community visits. How, what kind of uh, philosophy do you have there? Well, um, a couple of the things that we like to focus on, one is uh, real life skills. 
And uh, for example, on Thursdays, we take a small mixed age group of kids and they collaborate to plan a lunch. They have a budget, they have nutritional guidelines, and they democratically decide what they're going to prepare for their turn at making lunch. And this is with very little input from teachers. They decide what they're going to have, they order the groceries online, and then on Thursdays, they cook the food for our school community and families are invited as well. And while they're doing this, they're learning valuable life skills like budgeting, cooking, reading a recipe, measuring, keeping time. And the kids who don't cook that week are still participating by cleaning up after the meal. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about some of the feedback that you've gotten from, from students or parents. Because, you know, anytime you take your kid away from, you know, the standard education that you had growing up, you, you feel, I mean, I, I know as a parent, you know, you feel like you're <laughs> taking a big risk. Um, these have to be involved parents. They have to be thinking, you know, deeply about what they want for their children. Tell me a little bit about the, the atmosphere, atmosphere there with families and parents. Mm, absolutely. Um, and it can be scary to step away from what we know, mm -hmm. um, especially into, you know, an unknown, an unknown experience. And um, what I've heard, especially over the course of this year, I've heard families come to me and say, thank you. For the first time ever, my kid loves to read. They're reading books on their own. They're going to the library. They have a stack of books. They're reading all the time. Um, uh, so there's this excitement for, re for not just reading, but for learning that, um, that our kids have. Uh, another piece is I've had parents say, wow, the, my kids feel safe to be themselves, to be able to express who they are and to know that they are going to be loved and supported not only by the teachers, but by the whole community. It's a very, uh, it is a very supportive and inclusive community that we have. And it really is, it's not just a school, it's a, it's a community. Yeah. Angela Giffen is founder of Empower Ed and a teacher there. Um, we want to say thank you for your time and invite more people to send us their stories of, of, you know, different ways that you're approaching education and your community in the moment at sdpb.org. We'll have Angela back in the future, I hope, to talk more about this. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What does it mean to age with the whole world watching? The president recently took a tumble after a fall by Joe Biden at a United States Air Force Academy graduation ceremony. Many people were left pondering the intersection of aging and politics. Kevin Wooster takes a look at the topic online at sdpb.org slash Wooster. And he's with us in SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City with more. Kevin, thanks for being here. Hey, Lori, it's good to be here. No slips, trips, or falls on my way in, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> that, that is good news. It's, it's a, a big deal when, when the president falls. falls. I, I remember, remember Gerald Ford and Chevy Chase's impersonations of him on Saturday Night Live when I was just a wee one. Yeah. Um, so people have been making fun of the president for tripping or stumbling for a long time. This is a little different, though, because of this president's age. Yeah, and if you go back to Reagan, he had a little stumble on the stairs yeah. going up to Air Force One and kind of, you know, I think he braced himself as he went down and caught himself a little bit. But people watch that, and again, when a guy's 80, you know, yeah. that's a conversation, uh, especially when he's running for re-election. And, 
And so, as you know, as I think we all know, this was a conversation piece and used as a weapon politically, of course, as you might expect, by one side. And I think a more thoughtful discussion maybe for others that weren't just interested in scoring political points. But Yeah. I don't love seeing any president fall. No. No, of course it not. It ma- always d- makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Whether, you know, uh, politics aside, it just, it's it's hard to watch. And this was a big fall. I mean, he, he tripped over a sandbag that was poorly positioned, and he went down fairly hard for um, an older man. Yeah, and as I get into in the blog, those are falls that after a certain age, 65 up, and, you know, he's 80, so they can be complications in your life, and in some instances they lead to serious injuries and, you know, debilitating uh, lifestyles after that and even fatalities in some cases. So it's not something to laugh at, even though some people were, and, and he laughed at it. You know, because he got up and he was fine and joked about being sandbagged and and, uh, and then po- the discussion. My policy when I fall is to stay down for just a few minutes, you know, like think why you're, you know, unless you're, you know, I'm not in the road or something. Like think about how you got there before you get up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but he bounced, I mean, to other people it's very important that if you fall you bounce right up again. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. you and you make a joke and laugh it off. I'm a, I'm a fall and, and, you know, I was on crutches not too long ago, and I, you uh-huh. know, I took a few tumbles there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, you know, you and fall? it's something. <laughs> <laughs> and I, as I tell people, as you get older, they ask you at your annual checkup, uh, yeah. uh, do you fall? Have you had any falls? Have you, have and, you I, fallen? Yeah. and I say all the time, I'm always falling because I'm always <laughs> fishing, I'm always hunting, I'm always messing around outside and doing stuff, and I fall a lot. And that's kind of the way I always judge how I'm doing in my aging process if I fall and don't break anything. Yeah. And I, But I am getting more careful when I cross fences, when I get down out of the back of the pickup and those kinds of things. I don't jump down like I used to. I slide down and kind of sit and step down. Yeah. When, I, when they ask me if I fall, I say, no more than usual. They don't love yeah. that answer. <laughs> yeah. No, they don't. They don't. And no, they, they look really a they look alarmed when I say all the time, <laughs> all and then the time. I then I have to provide some sort of perspective for it. It's You're I was really also, good at it. <laughs> yeah, I do it quite well yeah, so I'm far. Good at landing well, <laughs> so, so far. far. <laughs> okay, so the politics of this, I'm not sure listeners are tuning in to talk of, to hear us talk about when we fall. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. politics of this though, age matters in, a, in an election. Fitness matters, the perception of fitness, and when you fall on camera. In this day and age, there's just all kinds of opportunities to uh, be spiteful with that. What have you noticed about how the response to the President Biden's tumble has been? Well, it, you know, I've had people, of course, telling me that he's senile and that he look at him, he can't even walk. And listen, his gait, as I've mentioned in the blog, is more, you know, it's getting stiffer. Yeah. And his steps are getting shorter and he's getting more careful. And, and I think that's noticeable even since he got to be president and you get around the age he is, I think. And I, and also, being president's a hard job. I think it affects anybody of any age. And uh, I think a lot of the discussion points are cheap and, and uh, predictably so, but some of them are valid when you're talking about this job and this type of a stress and strain that it puts on a human body. Is he prepared for another four years, if physically? 
Um, the uh, Republican I've front runner at this point is also um, an older gentleman. Donald yeah. Trump is uh, 77, I think. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. in his late yeah. 70s and not too far behind Joe Biden in, in age. Um, no. Does that matter at this point that they're both aging? I th- I th- I wish they were younger. <laughs> I wish, well, f- first <laughs> of all, too, I wish. Probably. Yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> first of all, I wish one of them hadn't inspired an insurrection and an attack on the Capitol. That's the biggest wish I have beyond age. But secondly, it, I, I think most of us would like to see a younger president. I guess the question is, uh, of the cho- choices we have, who's the, you know, the set the physical frailty aside that you may or may not see, and, you know, I pointed out that Biden jogged over to give Al Roker a, a fist bump in the inaugural parade and that I don't think in my life I could ever imagine Trump jogging for anything, certainly not at this stage in his life. Um, even though he he looks fairly, you know, he looks pretty good for a guy his age, and I don't know he if golfs. that's the... He does golf, yeah. I so think, I mean, I've seen, I should uh, say, I have seen pictures of him no, golfing. I assume he rides the cart most of the time, but... Uh, but you know he, and he is he took great care going up and down steps too, and he admitted that he ha- the Air yeah, Force. Yeah, he had one. a stumble. I remember, yeah. uh, you know, on a ramp. I think, and yeah. you know, people made gleeful fun of that as well. Maybe we can just end with uh, being a little kinder when people slip and fall, no matter who they are, and thinking about uh, how someone governs. Necessarily yeah, how about talk about issues? Their age, yeah. Let's talk about yeah. the issues. Well, we'll Let's keep trying, that. Kevin. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> you can read, on the other hand, online at sdpb.org slash Wooster. Kevin, looking forward to seeing you next time. Yes, all right. Judy Vidal has 77 years of musical experience to showcase, and that is just what she plans to do. She's exhibiting her talents during her one-woman show, Sharing a Dream, coming later in June. And Judy is with me now, also from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Judy, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you, Lori. It's wonderful, too. I'm such a fan of your show and, and the depth that you get into with your all of your interviews and uh, your career. So thank you. I am so looking forward to talking to you. I wish I could be there to see the performance because experience matters. And you have spent some time on the stage. How did you get started performing? Like how far 
back in your memory can you pull and say, this oh, is dear, when you I had knew, to ask that. <laughs> I, this is when I knew I wanted to be under the lights. When was that for you? Well, um, I started playing the piano when I was five. And, wow. uh, and, and so I've always been playing the piano, but not... Um, like professionally or whatever, although I did do a stint in um, when I was in college playing in a dance band where the guy had me playing actually the organ and insured my left foot. Um, <laughs> but I've always played, and and so now it's the musician. Mu- excuse me, the musicians lament that you know visual artists can have galleries and show their beautiful work and uh i can't show you my brahms intermezzo so um (laughs) you have to have a place to do that and and because i've done shows also and uh spent a lot of time either on the stage or directing my chorus uh, that i just retired from may last year that um i i'm blessed to have good genes and still can play and sing and and I'm anxious to um, entertain folks and do some of the things I love to do. Yeah, this is June 26th in Rapid City right. there. Mm-hmm. And it is a fundraiser, or there's a cause behind this concert, Women Against Violence, or Wavy. Tell yes, me a little exactly. bit why that matters. Why does that matter to you? Well, I had some trouble uh, earlier on in my life with the sort of thing that uh, a Wavy uh, would have been very helpful. Um, there wasn't one at the time, and I've uh, always supported them but not in, in such a way as to do a fundraiser and I thought I, I don't want to charge at the concert I just want to have people make generous donations because they have served so many people uh, what I think last year it was over 2,500 individual people and, um, and and I mean that's so amazing that we have that kind of a of a facility and I'm I'm thrilled that I can add my little bit to support them. I love this. And I'm looking at yeah. your lineup, the first half of the concert, um, the piano music you're playing, and then the vocal arrangements in Act Two. Tell me a little bit about some of your favorite songs that you get to just <laughs> love to perform in front of people. You know, um, thank you for asking that, Lori. I um, I was fortunate. It's actually been uh, 25 years. Oh, boy, am I dating. Um, but uh, <laughs> that I played Dolly Levi and Hello, Dolly! with Community Theater. And, uh, well, that was maybe the most fun that a person can possibly have. Well, as they say, with your clothes on. But I think it was pretty much the <laughs> most fun a person can have. Um, Dolly gets to sing almost everything. And... And it was just such a thrill, and uh, Justin Speck was in the cast, Crystal McKee, um, and many others, and it was wonderfully uh, uh, directed by Christine Grottle and, and the late, ever-great Eric Johnson. And after that, I started uh, doing duets and duetting with and performing with Eric, which was way too much fun also. <laughs> so that would be, I think, my Hello, Dolly medley I put together is one of the favorites. Yeah. And the other one that probably no one or few have heard of is um, uh, my son lives in London, and we always go to West End shows, but there's a show called Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Have you heard of it? I have not. It, it is a true story about a young man in the south of England, some coal town, who wanted to be a drag queen, and at 16 years old, his mother, bless her heart, gave him a pair of high-heeled red shoes, and I saw this show... And, and he dances in these things. And then she sings this <laughs> song called He's My Boy, which 
um, I opened the floodgates. As someone said, my heart was so full that my eyes were leaking. Um, but uh, And I saw that with my son, Matt. Um, I do have a Matthew Vidal son. It is not the one at community theater, but I uh-huh. think he's great, too. <laughs> <laughs> of this, I have no doubt. <laughs> but in any event, uh-huh. um, I yeah. went to see that, and I thought, I am going to perform that song. It is just, uh, people need to hear it, I think. I'm also yeah. doing a Stephen Sondheim. I mean, who can't not love that? Right? Yes. So I anyway, it, yeah, putting, it's just so much fun. This, yeah, putting this music in the world, inviting audiences to care about a cause, and then also to see that experience matters on stage and right. in performance. Uh, Judy Vidal, I just want to say thank you so much and let people know that this concert is June 26th at the Journey Museum in Rapid City. About 15 seconds left. Anything else you want to leave people with as far as um, getting to the event or, or you know, well, it's a wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> hey, that's a great idea. I should do that too. I think I have a pair. Thank you, Lori. Mine are, mine are going to be flats, Judy. Uh, we just talked with okay, Kevin that's about good. falling, and so you do not want to put me in heels, but I do have flat red <laughs> shoes. That's Felt. great. Clogs. <laughs> All the way. I love it. Okay. Nice to get to know you a little bit. Come back again. Thank you. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. We thank you for listening.